Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine will be joined by Gwendolyn Church, who runs Friends of Philip, which is a sanctuary, but is a little different from most of the sanctuaries you are probably familiar with since Philip and his friends are fish. You loved this interview, didn't you? I loved this interview. I love Gwendolyn. It was, I, I learned the name so Gwendolyn. much. What a great name. <laughs> and Philip, all of it. Just, you're going to, everyone's going to love this interview. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Gwendolyn. So if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for just $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please, please, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. And we have many, many inspiring guests and and we often have some great conversations about this, about that, about animal activism, about personal animals in our lives, about life. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you could also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine. Yes, totally. I'll look forward to that. Just email info at ourhenhouse.org and you will get the link to sign up for a chat with me. Oh, also, before we get into our discussions and our interview, I do have an exciting little update. We will be including transcripts to our interviews, written transcripts. Um, They'll all be in the show notes that are in conjunction with this episode. So be sure to check out the show notes if you want to read the interview. So we're really happy to be able to offer that again. We used to offer it. We didn't have enough bandwidth and now we do again. And also technology has gotten a lot better. So it is easier to have software help you with that. So yay, I'm so excited about it. So it is springtime. There is no doubt about it. It is an utterly staggeringly beautiful spring here in Rochester. Well, yeah, for the past three days. But before that, it was like winter. Maybe that's why I'm reacting like this. Like, I'm looking at the trees like a, I don't know, like I lived on another planet where there were no trees and then came down here and saw them. Like every single tree, every color, I'm stopping at every flower, like the hues of green, the scents of the... Uh, uh, of the lilacs here because it's lilac festival time, which is very celebratory and it's right in my neighborhood. So it's just been absolutely incredible. Like, I don't know if it's motivating me more or if it's making me want to like not work and just be outside staring at the different colors in the trees. This moment is so precious and I forget that like every year. So I'm really going to try to hold on to it. This moment where the trees have those little tiny leaves and they're all very pale green and the blossoms are out and 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 then all of a sudden it's gone and, and the trees are in full leaf, which is also lovely, but the, you know, it's a totally different thing. Like this, this just very brief period where you have that pale green everywhere. It's so beautiful. Are we being boring? Are we I'm waxing poetic about the weather? Maybe. Maybe we should start complaining, shall we? <laughs> that is why people listen to us, right? Well, they love to hear us. Probably complain. not to talk about like the weather being nice. But <laughs> anyway, so I got speaking of annoying things, this annoyed us. So we figured let's annoy our listeners with it. I got this press release about Moosewood kind of reopening with a new owner and for those who aren't familiar, Moosewood is like this iconic vegetarian restaurant that started in the early 70s. Yeah, like in 1973, I think in Ithaca. And Molly Katzen was the founder of it. And it was like a pretty big deal at the time. And also Molly Molly Katzen wrote the book, Moosewood Cookbook. Yeah. And that was just like every single vegetarian had that back then. It was just the classic uh, you know, there weren't so many vegans, but you could veganize a lot of the recipes. And yeah, it was it, it was 70s vegetarianism. Uh, yeah. and, and the restaurant has actually lasted that long. 
I was going to say, this is funny. I was going to say it was your mother's vegetarianism, but then I remember that. No, it's mine. I'm that old. I have a funny, I have a funny little anecdote though. At Veg News, where everyone is a lot younger than me, somehow the saying with them became not your grandmother's vegetarianism. And and I was always like, no, it's not your mother's vegetarianism. And it took us a while to figure out why we had. (laughs) You guys are slow. And then with you, it's like, it's my vegetarianism. But in any case, so I get this press release and I told you about it. And you're like, who put you on that list? And it's true. Like, yeah, you missed the memo, folks. So the new ownership really has the opportunity to get with the times and, you know, go vegan. Well, I think we like have to offer the explanation that not only has Moosewood consistently been vegetarian with lots of dairy, and you can always get good vegan food there, and the food there is actually terrific, but has not given up its vegetarianism, but years ago started also serving fish. Mm-hmm. Right, which is not okay. So then new owners... And I was so excited. We're all excited. Yeah, I open the... You know, we go into Ithaca sometimes because you teach at Cornell and sometimes I go with you to hang out. So I get the, I get this email. I'm so excited. It's, it's reimagining its menu. That's the word it used. It's, it's a return to the original ethos with a focus on locality and seasonality. I'm like, oh, what is it going to be? Next sentence that this was built upon the restaurant's longstanding relationships with local cheesemakers and beekeepers. And then it says current partners include, uh, it it names an ice cream company and it names a dairy. And it says that upstate New York has always been, this is like the longest press release in the history of press releases, which is not really how you're supposed to write press releases, by the way. So side note, upstate New York has always been known for its dairy farms and local artisanal cheese takes a starring role throughout the menu. The New York State Cheese Board features a rotating curation of cow, sheep, and goat milk cheeses from regional cheesemakers like this company and that company. Like not even one friggin' vegan cheese, not one. I, and and their their whole thing is that they're trying to appeal to this next generation. And I'm like, okay, well then you're gonna close down because the next generation is not interested in this particular thing. Like the the next generation is going to vegan restaurants, not vegetarian restaurants where they could get local cheese. So. And and they don't have fish on the menu, but they actually stuck a sentence in there that they might have fish again on the menu. So, so they're like not even, they're not even committing to vegetarianism. So disappointing. So out of step. Yeah, there's, we don't have any great poignant takeaway here. We were just annoyed and wanted to share it with you so that you could join us in your annoyance. Well, I think one takeaway that I could make, and this may be bullshit, but I really do think that this seems off. Like, I know we live in a little bit of a bubble, but veganism feels like exciting and new. And we're all the, the you know, like Matthew Kenny having 10 million restaurants opening. And that's like the new stuff, the exciting stuff. This just seems like, it, it just seems like old school. It really does. And I don't think that's probably just to me. Like New York State cheese, like who cares? Yeah. Right, totally. There's some really great uh, vegan cheesemakers that I'm particularly jazzed about. Spirit and Abundance comes to mind. It's here in Rochester. Just put them on the menu and I'll maybe I'll show up. Anyway, so the world is pretty horrible right now. Uh, you know, hashtag... Really? I hadn't noticed. Hashtag uh, SOTUS. So let's talk about it for a minute at the the Supreme Court stuff, but not not what has been in the news. I I was interested in an article that you found that you actually posted to our Henhouse's Facebook page. So make sure you're following that. And if you're in the flock, make sure you're also fo- uh, subscribed to the Our Henhouse flock group. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. So you posted a summary of, as you said, the enormously high stakes at issue in which the pork industry is trying to undo the idea that states can impose even minimal animal welfare requirements on the meat sold within their own state. This is a blog from the Humane Society, and we'll link to it in the show notes. It's called The Other Supreme Court Case You Should Be Following. Oh, 
wow. Yeah, actually, I mean, this is something I've talked a lot about in class, but I kind of forget that, you know, we don't talk about the legal stuff as much on the podcast. So I'm glad we have an opportunity to talk about it. This is a case attacking Prop 12, which most of you are familiar with. And, and the, the thing about Prop 12 that is driving the industry, in this case, particularly the pork industry, crazy, is that not only is California basically banning the gestation crate, but they are also banning the sale in California of any meat that is raised anywhere that comes from pigs who are raised in gestation crates. And I know this seems to a lot of you like, you know, small potatoes, but because these animals still live in utter hell and there's people are still eating them. But, you know, I think that we we here believe in in attacking the industry from a number of different ways. And, and one of them is to make them treat the animals just a tiny bit better, which will also usually make the, the meat a little bit more expensive. And that's how this works. So this is a legal effort. Prop 12 was a big deal, got it passed. And the industry has tried a number of ways to derail it legally and has failed. But they recently had a what looks like could be a, a success. And and these are cases that were completely rejected in the, they were in federal court. So they were completely rejected in the lower court, completely rejected in the circuit court. Uh, this idea that California cannot impose restrictions based in animal welfare on the meat that is sold in California. It's, they're just trying to, to control what's sold in California. The California state legislature with the sort of support of the people of California passed this law. We only want to sell and our people only want to buy pork that is raised in this particular way. And unbelievably, the Supreme Court has now, uh, nobody thought that the Supreme Court would take this case, but they have, which is kind of ominous. And it's all based in something, I don't want to get too legal technical, but this this like kind of old theory called the Dormant Commerce Clause. And, and some people don't even think it exists, including Justice Clarence Thomas. So I guess he should be on our side. That basically says that states can't pass laws that control other states. So you know, New York can't pass a law that requires people in Delaware to do something. Well, that makes total sense. And so they're say the industry is somehow saying that the state of California in passing this law is controlling what they can do to pigs in Montana. But of course it's not. They're only controlling what can be sold in California. But, you know, there are different ways to interpret all, all sorts of laws. And the fact that the Supreme Court said, yeah, maybe we should take a look at that never bodes well when, you know, this has been constantly a success for the animal rights groups in HSUS, which has been leading the charge on opposing this uh, these lawsuits. The animal rights movement is not really involved in the lawsuits themselves because it's the industry, the National Pork Producers Council in particular, suing California. But of course, uh, the animal rights groups have been chiming in and they're scared. Uh, it just shows you though, you know, that we could use this as just another rising anxiety. The fact that they are fighting this so hard just shows that they don't know how to raise animals for food in ways that are even remotely, hide not hideously cruel. Interestingly, the egg industry has not fought this that much there does seem to be more awareness in the egg industry that they are going to have to give up the battery cage. I mean, not that they're not fighting it at all, but the pork industry, tooth and nail, tooth and nail, they're doing anything they can to stop this. I tried to explain that in a way that was comprehensible. Was Did you think it was, Jasmine? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's yet another thing to be, I guess, concerned about, but I like your take on it and framing it as rising anxieties. The article says, the case against Proposition 12 doesn't just threaten states' abilities to protect the environment. A ruling in favor of the pork industry could also allow giant corporations to dodge state laws that prohibit, for example, wildlife trafficking, unsafe worker conditions, and child labor. Yeah, that's a really good point, which I should have made. They, they can't just narrow this, or I don't think they can, to farm animals. I mean, it covers everything. If a state can't pass, it means that every state if they're importing products from another state, has to comply with the worst laws in the country. So it's the lowest common denominator that 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 if they want to protect workers more and they say, you know, 
products can't be imported into California unless unless these worker provisions are are set in place and unless people are uh, are treated decently. Well, California wouldn't be able to do that anymore. It's not just animals at stake here. Totally. Well, let's pivot to positive news again. And the positive news is that there are people like our guests today who care so deeply and so passionately. And as I talk about with Gwendolyn, there are not nearly enough people who are including fishes in their farm animal protection. And I say fishes on purpose, which is something we get into, I think, on the bonus content. So be sure to listen for the bonus content if you are a flock member. But why don't we get to our interview with Gwendolyn? Yeah. And perfect timing with our Moosewood ridiculous sentence that they're not serving fishes on the menu now, but you know, they, they might in the future. Like people just don't even seem to think that fish are animals. Well, that is not true of Gwendolyn Church, who runs Friends of Philip Fish Sanctuary, an aquatic animal sanctuary and rescue in Reno, Nevada. Friends of Philip aims to expand the rescue conversation to include fish and aquatic animals and to foster the connection between humans and aquatic life through sharing the stories and vibrant personalities of their rescued animals. The organization provides sanctuary and rescue for animals in need and advocates for ending the consumption and commodification of fishes and other aquatic species. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at miyoko's.com with offer code henhouse15. Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you, for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk cheese and butter, we honor traditional dairy making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With love, Miyoko. 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code henhouse15. Welcome to our henhouse, Gwendolyn. Hi, Jasmine. Thanks so much for having me. I am really excited to talk to you for so many reasons, but I got to chat with you a few weeks ago because you're also in the flock. And so as I was talking to you and getting to know you a little bit, I just kept thinking, oh, I wish we were recording because... <laughs> Like what you do is so different and so cool and so important as we'll talk about. So, so much to dive into here. I'll start with this. Who is Philip and how did this all start? Philip is the first little fish that I I ever rescued. So he is a a betta fish and he was a, we call him like a store rescue. So essentially I had read on this website, Reddit, that people had had some luck rescuing a fish from a pet store because they found a sick fish on the shelf who wasn't doing well and then asked the managers if they could take the fish home. And so I thought that that sounded really cool. And I had this whole plan that I was going to kind of set up an aquarium and get it cycled and established and ready for a fish. And then maybe see if I found one. And it kind of went the opposite way that I I went to the pet store to look at aquarium equipment and I stopped and looked at, you know, we've all seen those horrible betta displays. And so I stopped and I looked at that and most of the bettas on there actually looked pretty good, but there was one little guy in the back who was just super skinny and pale and his little fins were all just rotted away and gone. And so it was really, really clear that he was going to die. 
And so I pulled him off the shelf and just approached a manager to ask if I could take him home. And they let me adopt him for free, which was great. And then I kind of frantically got all the aquarium equipment together and, and came home and did a pretty stressful couple of weeks for me of, of establishing the aquarium with him in it. And he survived and he did really, really well and was just kind of the, the motivation for everything else that we're doing now. So that's why he's in the name. So what is a betta fish and why are they so particularly vulnerable? Bettas, they're just a species of tropical fish. And a lot of people will say betta fish. I just grew up saying betta, so I've always said betta, but betta, betta, the same type of fish. They're a tropical species from East Asia, and they were originally domesticated for fighting because they're incredibly aggressive and territorial fish. And so now they've been selectively bred for generations to just be beautiful. You know, we've all seen the really bright colored fins and kind of flashy appearance of them. And so that makes them really interesting to people and really fascinating and fun to keep as kind of like a decoration in many ways. And unfortunately, what that means is that the pet industry, much in the way that the animal agriculture industry does to to maximize profits, they sell hundreds of thousands of bettas. And because they're so aggressive, the pet stores will keep them in these individual plastic cups when they're for sale. And so that's just basically the worst environment you could ever keep a fish in. And so it, it means that a lot of them die on the shelves. A lot of them die in transport. A lot of them die at the farms that they're raised at. And unfortunately, on, on top of that, they're also marketed as kind of like a beginner fish. Because most other fishes that you see at the store, they're in like a big wall of tanks or something, but bettas are in these little tiny cups. And so they're marketed as a fish that could be bought, put into a bowl, and who will do fine. And because they're fairly resilient species, a lot of people will buy them and put them in a bowl, and then they suffer extensively because of that. If I had a rescued betta fish, I think I would name the fish Betta Midler. I just wanted to say that. That's the perfect name. Thank you. Maybe we'll name the next one who comes in. Please do. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So how big is the sanctuary now? And where are you at in the nonprofit uh, process? The sanctuary itself is is fairly small. We kind of fit in that category of like a micro sanctuary. It's a single room at my house that has crept out into other areas of the house. We have a, a stock tank in the garage and then four tanks in our kind of kitchen living room area, as well as a single fish room that has a bunch of aquariums in it. So size-wise, it's not huge, but we do have just over 30 aquariums and ponds and over 100 fish residents of quite a few different species. So it looks quite a bit different than your kind of classic farmed animal sanctuary or animal rescue setup. And as far as the nonprofit goes, we're putting our board together and in the the early stages of drafting bylaws and doing all of that to try to incorporate as a 501c3 this year. So how are you supporting this? Because it doesn't sound inexpensive. It's not inexpensive. That's true. A lot of it is kind of the initial cost of once you have an aquarium up and running, it's not too expensive, but setting up the aquariums is fairly expensive. So I fund a lot of it myself. And then we have quite a few generous people who who will donate here and there to help support certain intakes and things. And then we have a small following on Patreon who very generously donates to us each month, which helps hugely with things like veterinary bills and, and all of that. And what are what is your Patreon for someone who is so moved right now? We are on Patreon, it's Friends of Philip Fish Rescue. Do you do adoptions? And if so, Tell me about that. What do you look for in adopters? We do do adoptions and it really depends on the species because with fishes, it's it's kind of funny that it's not just like, you know, you're taking care of a single species and so you need to decide that care. There's over 33,000 different species of fish. And of course, we don't have nearly that many in captivity, but the ones that we have, we have over 20 species of fish here. And so the requirements for someone to adopt a betta and for someone to adopt a goldfish are going to be radically different. But the big things that we look for in an adopter 
initially, you know, it's someone who just wants to adopt a fish. That's a big starting point because you don't find that very often. People don't think that adoption is really an option for fish. So that's kind of step one. And then we ask for a photo of their aquarium, information about the other animals living in the aquarium, information about their background and fish keeping and what they know about things like the nitrogen cycle and water quality and information about the maintenance routine for their aquarium. And then kind of their just general plans for the fishes and things. You know, we, we have certain tank size requirements and that kind of thing, but that's really just a very basic starting point. So it's, it's a bit more of a conversation a lot of the time. And I understand that you have a lot of support from family. I'd love to hear about what that process is like, because I think it's fascinating. And I mean, mom, dad, fam, I am going to start a fish sanctuary. <laughs> Tell me about your family and where they fit in. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really funny process, I guess, because who, who starts a fish sanctuary, right? But yeah, I, I do have a wonderful, incredibly supportive family. My fiance is so incredibly supportive of the entire thing. I mean, we we just moved to Reno and we bought this house and the whole time we were talking about the fish room. We'd already decided there was going to be a fish room and, and all of that. And so he's incredibly supportive. He helps to feed the fishes and take care of things on the, at the sanctuary and that kind of thing. And then my oldest brother is actually going to be on our board. He has a small little family of rescued African dwarf frogs that live with him. So they're kind of, they're a little extension of the sanctuary out in the Bay Area. My other older brother created our logo and was really supportive in that way and and has helped with like a lot of the artistic aspects of things. And my younger brother is just always super supportive and excited to hear about stuff. And same thing with my parents. Like I, I was renting from my parents before we moved to Reno. And so I started this fish sanctuary basically in like their house. I had a, a separate unit, but I filled it with aquariums and how many landlords are going to allow that? Um, really not very many. And so I'm very, very lucky to have such an incredibly supportive family. Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. I love the brother joining the board too. So you told me about the OG fish. Where where are you getting your fish now? Like where are they where are they coming from? How do they wind up in your fish family? The two main kind of sources, if you will, of surrenders are pet stores and kind of individual caregivers. So of course we have the the very strict policy that we never purchase an animal. So we're not going to go to a pet store and like buy a fish that is very counter to what we're working on. But most pet stores, whether large or small, do have a policy around sick animals and what they're allowed to do with them. And so quite a few stores, if you see someone on the shelf who's sick and not doing well, if you ask a manager about that animal, they may or may not let you adopt them. I've heard of people having luck doing this even with like small mammals and reptiles. I've only ever tried it with with fishes, but that's kind of where our store rescues come from, and, and in particular, bettas. Because, again, they're in those awful little cups. You can find them there on the shelf very easily, pick them up, and take them to a manager. So that's where most of our bettas come from. And then for our other kind of small tropical fish and goldfish species, most of those are caregiver surrenders of people who, for one reason or another, can't or don't want to keep their their fishes anymore. And so they reach out to us or sometimes I'll see fishes listed on Craigslist and things and, and reach out to them and have them rehome to us that way. So how do the rescue and sanctuary for aquatic animals differ from that for terrestrial animals? In quite a few ways, really. Of course, the obvious one is that you have to have a whole bunch of aquariums and, and a whole bunch of water for the aquatic animals. But there's quite a few different considerations with things like water quality and the effect that that has on animals. You know, of course, for terrestrial animals, it's important that they have access to fresh air, that they're able to have a, a safe, clean, warm place to sleep and areas with enrichment and areas to explore and exercise their natural behaviors. And all of that is the same with fishes. 
but it's kind of compounded by the fact that they are in this very strictly enclosed area. You know, you can take like a goat or a cow out of their pasture and take them for a walk and interact with them that way, but to, to remove a fish from their environment is very stressful. So they're in this kind of enclosed world and you have to be just cognizant of that and really know that that's all that they have. And so the importance of water quality in fish keeping and providing sanctuary to fishes or a home to fishes is just so incredibly important. They live in the water, they poop in the water, they eat in the water, everything happens in there. And so without a thorough understanding of something like of a thing called the nitrogen cycle, it's basically impossible to keep fishes healthy and and safe in in kind of a humane way. So the consideration of water quality is just a whole new thing that you don't ever experience with terrestrial animals other than, of course, that they have access to clean water. So that's pretty huge. And then the other aspect is the sheer number of species that you may be looking at. On a farmed animal sanctuary, you may see five to 10 or 12 or or somewhere in that kind of range, that like that many species. But with aquatic animals, it's very, very easy to have 20 species or, or more, and all of whom have very radically different care needs. Like the, the needs for a, a goldfish compared to like a Corydora catfish are so, so different, and those fishes can't cohabitate. And so it's kind of an interesting understanding of, of the, the species and their different needs that you need to be aware of. I'm sure you're learning a lot as you go, too. I think a lot of us know that there are a lot of misconceptions about fish and other aquatic animals, but we don't necessarily know a lot about what really is known. Can you tell us what the misconceptions are, particularly about the sentience of fish and how we should be thinking about these animals? The sentience thing is is always so sad to me because we have abundant scientific evidence that fish are sentient, that they do feel pain and that they have experiences and many of them have very long memories. And so the simple misconception that fish don't feel pain is still so tragically prevalent in a lot of areas. And I think it can't really be overstated how wrong that is. There's tons and tons of studies that show that fish feel pain and that they have memories and that they will avoid negative experiences. And and that's kind of a, a pretty solid baseline that we use for a lot of other animals. But for some reason, there's this kind of attitude that when something happens with a fish, there must be something wrong with the test and that it's kind of a fluke. Like there is a, a study recently that showed that cleaner wrasse have self-recognition. They passed the what's called the mirror test. And once that study came out, there started to be all of these articles also coming out saying, oh, is there something wrong with this test? And that's the same test that we've used to determine that all sorts of species have that same kind of self-recognition. So there's this ongoing kind of prejudice against fishes as being a, a less intelligent animal or something like that. But the reality is that fish species make up over 60% of the known vertebrate species on Earth. And so when we look at kind of the scale of these assumptions that we're assuming that 60% of the vertebrate species on Earth can't feel pain or that they're not sentient or that they don't have experiences, it's a pretty sad reflection on kind of our hubris in many ways, I think. Completely. It is difficult to wrap your head around, really. So let's talk about personality. How do the personalities of the fish who you've gotten to know differ from one another? They can differ pretty dramatically. We have fishes who are outgoing and just in your face, hoping for food constantly. We have fishes who are incredibly shy we have everyone in between. In general, our fishes are very curious and very active, in part because they're kept in environments that allow them to, to exercise some of those natural behaviors. But personality-wise, you can, you can see a huge range. We have fishes who are very like sweet and calm, and then others who are much more feisty and aggressive. And, and that's even just in the same species that we have we used to have a betta, she passed recently, who 
was incredibly, incredibly social, which is kind of unusual sometimes in that species. And she lived in one of our community tanks for her whole life because if she was not in the community tank, she was visibly depressed. Um, She wasn't active. She was less interested in food. She was hiding more. But in the community tank, she was always out and about interacting with the other fishes. She would come right to the side to see us. And so the more time that you spend around fishes, and just like with any animal, the the more apparent it really becomes that they do have their individual personalities and, and interests. So the next question I have for you, I want to start by telling a story. And I, I already told you this story when we were talking uh, for the flock, but it's a bit of a confessional. Don't you love when vegans confess <laughs> things? Like, I mean, it happens to all of us all the time. But, And I think that we've all, also, many of us, including vegans, have had our history with fish and maybe even pet fish. In my case, I had a fish a pet fish when I was a kid in the eighties. So therefore I named my fish Debbie Gibson (laughs) and my brother had a fish who he named Tom Seaver, who was a major Mets player on the Mets. Anyway, I don't really know why this happened. I'll need to ask my mom, but there was a point where we had the fish in, in the aquarium that we had. And my mom suggested that we give the Debbie Gibson and Tom Seaver away to her friend who had a pond with fish in it. And I don't really know why I said yes, because I really did love Debbie Gibson. (laughs) But I said yes. I I like to believe that it was some kind of, you know, compassion feeling, but I'm not sure. I was probably just, you know, whatever. I was probably just, you know, being a brooding tween or something. But in any case, Debbie Gibson and Tom Seaver moved to my mom's friend's pond. And we went to visit them like maybe a year later and they were enormous. Like they grew like 500 times the size of what they were in our little aquarium. And I have to say, you know, I hate when people use animals as metaphors. So I'm not going to do that here. I'm not going to say the whole thing about how we adapt to our uh, you know, environment, however small or large. But I am going to say quite literally, not metaphorically, that when I saw how big they had become, I realized how small I was keeping them. So with that in mind, what are the common mistakes that people make with pet fish? And I'm curious if you have a Debbie Gibson story of your own. Oh gosh, I do. Or a a similar one. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting really because pet fish, they are, they are the most numerous pet animal. And so most of us do have some stories like that, that when I was growing up, my family had bettas that we kept in bowls and we never really thought much of it. You know, it was early kind of nineties and even into late nineties and the internet was just a newer thing. And, And everything that my parents knew about fish, they had learned from like books that they checked out at the library and the general attitude was that bettas do great in bowls and that that's perfectly acceptable for a fish. And, you know, my, my parents and my mom in particular took very good care of those fish. They were, my mom was constantly changing their water and giving them the best care that we knew how to at the time. But that myth still persists today and and you still see fish for sale to go into bowls and things in the store. So, as far as common mistakes, that's that's a huge one, is getting the environment wrong. Like a betta should not live in a bowl, and a goldfish certainly should not live in a bowl. And no fish ever should live in a bowl, really. And so it's so incredibly important if you're interested in bringing a fish into your home to very thoroughly research the needs of that species, but then to also do all of that research with a very critical mind and perspective, because you'll definitely still find websites that say that fish will do great in bowls or say that a 15 gallon tank is fine for a goldfish and things like that. And it's, it's really important to just take all of that with a grain of salt and do a lot of, a lot of critical thinking and and realize that this fish is going to live their whole life in the environment that you provide them. And that it's our responsibility as caregivers to give them the best environment that we can. So that's absolutely a huge one. And kind of hand in hand with that is, um, I mentioned it earlier, but there's this thing called the nitrogen cycle, which is essentially 
a bacterial cycle in aquariums that processes fish waste to make the water safer for fish. And if you put a fish into what's called an uncycled aquarium that doesn't have that nitrogen cycle in there, the water quality is going to get bad very quickly. And that fish can will almost certainly die and then can also suffer some pretty significant side effects from the accumulation of things like ammonia in the water. And so 20 to 30 minutes of, of Googling and reading about the nitrogen cycle and understanding what something called a fishless cycle looks like and what you need to do to establish an aquarium can very literally save lives and save the lives of the fish that you bring into your home. So those are kind of the two really big ones. The next one I would say is people housing incompatible species or kind of what we call overstocking, which I don't really like that word, but overcrowding an aquarium, putting too many fishes into one aquarium and putting species who aren't compatible together. For some reason, people seem to really like to keep fancy goldfish with cichlids, which fancy goldfish are a slow moving, very kind of docile, calm species. And then cichlids are just like the opposite of that. They're fast, they're aggressive, they're nippy, and they're going to just harass those poor little goldfish and make their lives miserable. Not to mention that those species have fundamentally different requirements in terms of environment. So really just lack of research. I think people want to think that pet stores are good sources of information and just really they're, they're generally not. Most pet stores, especially big box stores, have very, very little training for their employees on proper care of animals. And many of them require employees to do things like try to sell fish bowls and say that a bowl is acceptable or something like that for a fish. And, and we all kind of know that it's not, but that's the information that you'll find in a pet store. Speaking of pet stores, where do aquarium fish come from? Are they bred? Are they captured? Really, it... it so it always kind of depends on the species. That's going to be the answer for a lot of those. That most freshwater fish, about 90% of freshwater fish, are bred in captivity for the aquarium trade. And those fishes come from enormous fish farms that are usually in the Southeast Asia area and then shipped around the world. And so you think of something like a factory farm, you think of something like the fish farms that we've all seen for, for, you know, the fish that people want to eat. It looks very similar to that. It's just that the fishes are smaller. And so they're bred in mass at these large farms and then shipped all over the world. Of course, some completely unknown number die in transit, being shipped from the farms to the distributors, from the distributors to the stores. Most of these fishes, when like a store or something places an order, it's for an amount by weight. So if if someone wants a thousand neon tetras, the distributor knows roughly how much a thousand neon tetras weigh, and they'll just scoop all of those little fishes out of this, this enormous tank and, and send them on their way. So that's where a lot of freshwater fishes come from. Saltwater is its own monstrosity, unfortunately. Most saltwater fishes are wild caught. And so those guys come from the tropical areas. Hawaii has a huge problem with people capturing their reef fishes for the aquarium trade. And so does the Philippines. You know, anywhere with reef ecosystems, it's almost guaranteed that there are people there catching fishes for the aquarium trade. The, the demand for saltwater fish for the aquarium trade is enormous. And I think it's something like 90% of those fishes die within the first year of capture because they're ripped from their wild home where they have their families and their lives. And then they're put into bags and shipped all over the world and then put into someone's home aquarium where hopefully that person did the research and has it established correctly. But it's pretty brutal on both sides, really, the, the freshwater farming and the saltwater wild capture. And there's some overlap on both, you know, some freshwater fishes like pea puffers are frequently wild caught and things like that. But farms and wild capture, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, this might be a silly question, but do you develop personal relationships with individual fish? I Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I could have asked it differently. I'd love to hear about some of those relationships. Yeah, Absolutely. 
it's kind of interesting because of course a, a relationship with the fish is going to be a bit different than a relationship with like a, a dog or a cow or an animal who you can cuddle. But we do know that fishes recognize their caregivers and they will respond to that. And so most of our fishes very quickly after arriving, they they come to recognize me and they recognize my fiance and and they'll respond specifically to us coming into the room to see them. There are quite a few fishes who we have who are very skittish, but if I'm reaching into the aquarium to do something, they're much calmer and they're less likely to run away than if someone else needed to. We don't frequently have other people reaching into the aquariums, but if the vet is there or something, the, the fish are, are much more afraid of the vet than they are of me because they see me every day and they learn to, to know that I'm not there to, to catch them or anything like that. So we definitely can develop those one-on-one relationships, especially you see it most with some of the more sensitive fishes. Like we have a, a cichlid named Sam who's very, very shy. She's very skittish. And when someone walks into the room, she swims away and hides very quickly and takes her a minute to kind of scope things out and come out to make sure that everything's okay. But if it's me or my fiance, she comes back out much faster and she'll be out kind of watching us where if there are other people in the house, she's basically hiding and and doesn't want to see people. So it's pretty remarkable to see the way they recognize people. I have a friend who is a vegan animal rights person who I think recently got into very similar type of rescue, sort of, you know, by accident. She was at a pet supply store buying some things for her dog and there were some fish who looked really sick and she basically was like, you're giving me those fish. And the owner was like, okay. (laughs) Like that was the beginning for her and then she figured it out. I know you, I definitely need to connect you too. But if anyone is listening to this, who is considering fish rescue, what is your basic advice? The big thing is to, to research the nitrogen cycle and to have a really good understanding of what it takes to create and maintain a healthy aquatic environment. Without that, you're, it sounds very dramatic, but you're, you're nearly doomed to failure and you're putting the fish very much at risk. And so that's absolutely the first place to start. Without that, there's just really no way to humanely and safely keep aquatic animals. So definitely starting there. And then really that that same species-specific research of knowing what species you are interested in rescuing and which ones you have the space for. Because a betta can do very well in a 5 or 10-gallon aquarium, which most people have space for pretty easily. But an animal like a common goldfish needs to be kept with at least one other goldfish, and then those two fishes will need 100 gallons. And so knowing exactly what you're prepared for and knowing what all of that is is going to take, both in terms of the financial costs and the space and, and all of those things and the time commitment. And then another big one is, you know, unfortunately, not everyone has access to it. But if you can find a specialized aquatic veterinarian in your area, that is huge. You'll find so much terrible misinformation online about fish health and fish care. A lot of stores sell just over-the-counter antibiotics that aren't super regulated or anything like that that are put into aquariums and you don't really know how much medication you're using. You don't actually know what treatment you're trying to use or anything like that. If you can have access to a a veterinarian who really knows what they're doing and can come in and the same way you would with any animal, that puts you at a really, really good advantage and and gives you and your fish the best chance of of success. And by the way, can someone with a cat successfully have rescued fish? Yeah, I would say so. I say this as a person who does not have a cat, but my brother has a cat and their little frogs do do great and have no, there's no risk of the cat getting to the frogs. The big thing is that you want to, of course, prevent the cat from being able to get into the aquarium. A very sturdy lid is a good idea, whether or not you have a cat. There are all sorts of very sad stories of fishes jumping out of aquariums because they don't totally recognize that they're in this enclosed box and that there's not water to jump to on the other side. So a lid's a good idea anyway, but it'll also keep your cat out of the the aquarium. You also don't want the cat drinking the aquarium water and things like that. So a sturdy lid should protect your your fish and your cat. 
Very good. Okay. Well, of course, the aquarium trade, as problematic as it is, is only a drop in the bucket, so to speak, compared to the situation for the fish that people eat. Can you give us a quick overview of the problems that fish and other aquatic species face? Gosh, it's it's heart-wrenching. It kind of is that same captive bred versus wild capture challenge that you see in the aquarium trade where fishes who are raised in captivity for food face all sorts of problems that and, and very similar ones that you see in large-scale terrestrial animal farming. You have overcrowding, filthy conditions, rampant disease, lack of enrichment or ability to exercise natural behaviors. You have all of these problems. And then on top of that, you have the problem of water quality, that these fish are living in and breathing their own waste, each other's waste, and there's no escape from it. And really, it's, it, it is very similar to what you see in, in kind of, you know, the factory farm model of huge, huge, huge numbers of fishes kept in these industrial fish farms. And on top of that, there's no legal protections for fishes. And so I don't think any of us would say the legal protections for any terrestrial animals are good, but there's no minimum size. There's no requirement for water quality and testing. And all of these things are generally unregulated and awful for the fishes. It's it's very common to see rampant disease and and health problems affecting farmed fishes that I don't know if you've seen the undercover videos, but there are some undercover videos of the the farmed fish kind of world. And you'll see fishes with like their skin hanging off of them because they have horrendous parasites or bacterial infections. The overuse of antibiotics continues into the fish world too. And it's really a, a problem there as well. So along with that, there isn't any kind of standard for how these animals should be slaughtered. And so a lot of them are killed through suffocation of just being removed from the water. Maybe they're put on ice or something and, and just left to suffocate, which is the equivalent of killing an animal by, you know, killing a terrestrial animal by drowning. It's a truly awful, painful way for these animals to be killed. And so it's really, truly awful. <laughs> like there's no, there's no understating that. And that's just in the fish kind of farming world, which a lot of people consider to be quote unquote better than wild capture, because of course, wild capture has the huge problem of bycatch, where unfortunately for the fishes, I should say, sea turtles and dolphins are much more personable and well-liked than fishes. And so when we talk about wild capture of fishes, bycatch is usually the big thing. But the kind of standard method for a lot of wild fish capture is bottom trawling, where they use these enormous nets that can be several miles long, and they'll drag them along the bottom of the ocean, destroy whatever ecosystem is there, catch fish by the hundreds of thousands, and then haul these fish up out of the water to generally die by suffocation. There's no other way, or by crushing, you know, because they're trapped among their fellows and, and are crushed. And so it's another just awful, horrible way for these animals to be treated and for them to die. And every single one of those fish of those fishes is an individual who who wants to not be going through that, of course. And it's incredibly, incredibly cruel. Is there any awareness among the many people who keep fish that Maybe they shouldn't eat other fish. Is this a way into people's hearts? Or are we just continuing on with that good old cognitive dissonance that humans are so damn good at? Very sadly, it's mostly the, the cognitive dissonance route. I've read anecdotally online people sharing like, oh my gosh, I, I stopped eating fish once I bought my betta because I, I met him and saw his personality. But those are few and far between compared to the people who who keep fishes but still eat fishes and other animals. And a lot of it, I think, stems from the fact that fishes as a kind of a pet, they are sometimes hardly even considered a pet. A lot of people want an aquarium because they want a beautiful thing to look at. 
And the fishes and the animals inside that aquarium just kind of complete that picture where, you know, most people hopefully who adopt a dog want a companion animal. And many people who purchase fishes don't really have that motivation, I guess. And so for both fresh and saltwater, they're, they're really seen as this kind of decorative object. And I think that makes it that much easier to continue to view animals and fishes as something to be consumed. I know you were already a vegan animal rights person when Philip came into your life, but I'm curious how he and the rest have changed your life and your worldview. <laughs> yeah, pretty dramatically. So I, I had been vegan for a couple of years before I met Philip. And I'd been volunteering at a farmed animal sanctuary and really loved animals and interacting with animals. And I knew I wanted to do some kind of rescue and help in that way. And I hadn't really considered fish as the way to do that. And so it was a little bit, I think, of an accident in some ways that I got into fish rescue because it, it was just the thing that I was able to do with the space that I had that I I didn't really have the space to give a cow or a larger animal like that a, a great life, but I definitely had the space for an aquarium. And so when I first adopted or, or rescued Philip, I think I had a mindset very similar to most vegans where I, when I was thinking about animal agriculture, I was thinking about terrestrial animals. When I was thinking about veganism, it was from that perspective. And Adopting Philip and starting this kind of journey of fish rescue and working with aquatic animals really just gave me a much better view of the true scale of some of the problems that all animals are facing, but aquatic animals in particular. You know, most farm sanctuaries are doing absolutely phenomenal work, but if you go and you tour a farmed animal sanctuary, at some point, they're likely to mention fishes. And really it's in the context of like, yeah, and, and we also don't eat fishes. But fishes are so forgotten in the animal rescue world, in the animal rights world, in the vegan world, and of course, even more broadly in the non-vegan world. And so it's heartbreaking because fishes are also the most consumed food animal. They're the most numerous pet animal. And they're second only to mice in numbers used for scientific research. And so when we think of the scale of terrestrial animal farming in the billions, for fishes, that number is in the trillions. Every single year killed for consumption and killed for research and killed as pets and mistreated as pets and all of these things. And so going through this kind of has really broadened my perspective in that area and, and let me realize that there's a lot of vegans and a lot of animal rights people doing absolutely incredible work, but an area that desperately needs more help and that really needs more people working for them is, is the fishes and the aquatic animals. And on that note, how can people get involved with your efforts? Because I think you're absolutely right. This is a very big blind spot, including for vegans, many times including for me. And I consider myself very knowledgeable and understanding of issues of animal exploitation, but there have definitely been times when I've realized I've left fishes out of the conversation and out of my advocacy efforts. It's a journey I've been on the last couple of years to put them much more front and center. And I'd love to know how people who are listening to this, who are having that same awakening can reach out to you or support your sanctuary. Yeah, so we're on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram, we're friends of Philip underscore fish sanctuary. And then on Facebook, it's just friends of Philip. So you can find us on there, follow and ask questions or reach out to me through either of those places. I, I try to get back to people. Sometimes I get a little overwhelmed with messages and things, but I'm always happy to, to answer questions and offer guidance. And one thing I would say for anyone who does want to kind of get more involved for fishes is to try to meet some fishes. Like I think a really common suggestion is that new vegans go to farmed animal sanctuaries and meet the victims of, of these horrible industries. 
And it can be a little harder to meet fishes in person, but if you're able to, it's it's huge to be able to do that, to get to interact with them and know them as individuals and really see why we do this. Well, Gwendolyn, thank you so much for all that you're doing. And I hope that you'll stay in touch with us and let us know how the sanctuary progresses and how we can continue to support you. I think what you're doing is incredible. And I do have a few more questions for you. So I hope you'll stay on for some bonus content for our flock. But thank you again for joining us on our hen house today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from Gizmodo. I love this one. Dairy giant decries vegan, quote, cancel culture, says Gen Z is ashamed to order dairy in public. Wouldn't you, don't you wish that were really true? Well, I guess it's sort of true. This is a, a, an article by one Molly Taft, and she is not unsympathetic to the vegan cause. She is just reporting on this. And she says that Arla Foods, which I think is a Swedish company, said people are making dietary decisions based only on, quote, popular opinion. Well, God forbid they should do that instead of listening to dairy producers. Uh, so in this press release, Arla said that it, it conducted this research. And it showed that 34% of people living in the UK make dietary choices, quote, based purely on information from social media, unquote. This, the release continues, is a big problem. Well, I'm sure it is. It's a problem for you. It also claims that half of Gen Z respondents are, quote, ashamed to order dairy in public in front of their peers. And though while 70% of them would like to keep eating dairy, like why? Why? I ask you. And a, quote, alarming 57% plan to take dairy out of their diets in the next year. That is really, really good news. So uh, she does go on to say that uh, more, she's totally on the environmental side. They don't talk at all about animal welfare, which is just peculiar, but we all know that that's true. And she's talking about there are substantial environmental problems plaguing the, um, the milk industry, though then she says that there are also ones she brings up the astronomical water used to grow crops like nuts. She's talking about almonds and, and it doesn't use as much water as dairy and you don't have to drink almond milk, but you know, you know, but it, the article is, is overall pretty good, but she has to go back and be a little nice to them. And she says to its credit, Marla seems to be checking a lot of the boxes when it comes to corporate actions on climate. Why do they always feel that they have to be quote unquote fair? Uh, this isn't fair. This is bullshit. It has a plan to reach net zero by 2050, although we know those plans can often be problematic. Uh, no shit, like very problematic. It has a plan. Like how about doing something now? 2050, we'll all be underwater. Will Joaquin Phoenix make terrorists into freedom fighters? This is from Humane Watch. And it's talking about uh, the, the recent announcement that Joaquin Phoenix made about making a film adaptation of Free the Animals, which is, of course, Ingrid Newkirk's book about um, the Animal Liberation Front, uh, you know, which was, you know, active in the 90s and did a lot of sneaking into places, did some property damage, uh, very different from the approach that direct action everywhere is taking nowadays, but a really important part of our history. And this article um, is not happy about it. Joaquin Phoenix, the weird actor known for his role in Joker, announced that he may produce a film adaptation of Free the Animals, a book lauding the terroristic efforts of the Animal Liberation Front. Phoenix has a long history of animal liberation activism, including multiple public outbursts where he has urged people to adopt his vegan beliefs. I assume one of the public outbursts they are referring to is his acceptance of Best Actor Award at the, at the Oscars last year for this weird actor. Uh, yeah, uh, you know... 
Yes, Free the Animals is about the balaclava wearing here. This is from Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, sorry, uh, a quote from Joaquin Phoenix. Yes, Free the Animals is about the balaclava wearing heroes who break windows and laws to save animals, but it's also about everyone. It's a call to us all to take action. Whether it's wielding crowbars and bolt cutters or picking up a pen or a protest sign, every one of us can and must fight injustice and push for animal liberation every chance we get. Well, no wonder they're upset because that's exactly the kind of thing that they hate to hear. Uh, they hate they hate us when we do anything. And then it just goes on to, to whine unendingly about PETA and everything that PETA's done. You've heard all that before. All right, finally, pig farmers alerted to spike in animal activist incursions. This is from the UK. There, oh, this sweet little picture of all these little pigs. Apparently, pig farmers have been put on alert. Nothing's happened. They've just been put on alert to the increased risks of incursions. It sounds kind of military, doesn't it? And secret filming. Oh, God forbid you should be filmed. This is uh, because the pig and poultry fair is coming up. Zoe Davies, who is chief executive of the National Pig Association, said the organization has seen an elevation of animal rights activity and urged farmers to be extra vigilant. Oh, apparently they, there was a farm in North Yorkshire where they discovered a camera had been placed quite brazenly above a pig pen, leading to fears of surveillance by activists. So it sounds like there was surveillance by activists unless it was just some random camera. Uh, they're putting out a lot of CCTV and their concern is that when farmers are literally on their knees, they'll get another expose. What do they mean literally on their knees? Do they mean the farmers are literally on their knees? And why are they on their knees? And if they don't mean literally, because I do understand that the word literally has been co-opted, not just by this site, but by many. And it now means the opposite. Uh, it means figuratively now. But what do they mean figuratively on their knees? Uh, is the pig industry in trouble in the UK? But this is something they really don't want. Well, I bet they don't. I bet they don't. You know, the, the organizations love to make the farmers, quote unquote, farmers, even more frightened because that makes them support the organization. So they're, they're all in it for themselves. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.